Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Raid Ghani. Raid is director of the Center for Data Science and Public Policy at the University of Chicago. Raid, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you, Sam. Glad to be here. Uh, it's great to have you on the show, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. To give our listeners a bit of background, why don't we start out by having you tell us a little bit about how you got involved at the intersection of uh, machine learning, AI, and uh, the public good? Um, yeah, I mean, I think for, for, for me, the interest in machine learning came fairly early in, in college, got me into grad school, and, and, and then got me into doing sort of R&D that was focused on machine learning, tackling real problems. Now, at some point uh, doing that, I realized that a lot of the real problems I was tackling were, were coming from the corporate world, and I didn't really care about uh, having an impact on, you know, helping a company make more money. Um, um, the intellectual challenge was there in the machine learning side, but but the the, the, the personal social satisfaction uh, on the on the impact side wasn't there. At the same time, I was spending a lot of time you know, doing volunteer work, teaching kids in schools for years and, and other things. And those two were separate parts to two different parts of my life. And eventually I decided that I, I needed to merge those. I needed to kind of do work that I was good at and that I cared about. Um, and that's what led me to, to, to finding an intersection that allowed me to, to really use my, my skills, but, but have an impact on issues that, that I cared about and that would, that would improve the world. Um, and it really took, you know, it wasn't sort of an instant switch. It took, it took a while for me to figure out what that meant. Um, and the first iteration for me for the, uh, of that was um, working at the Obama 2012 campaign, kind of helping run the data science team there to, to get closer to that intersection. And then after that, joining University of Chicago um, and building different programs and different teams to, to both do this intersection work at this intersection but also train other other students and policymakers at this intersection so i started a program called data science for social good that trains students uh, we have a joint program with nyu in maryland that trains government agencies and how to do these things um so i mean that that path is still going going i'm not quite sure you know it's always changing and new things coming up but but that's at least it was my start to kind of combine the two things that i that that i was good at and, and cared about. Fantastic. Uh, so you mentioned your work on the Obama campaign. That was one of the first campaigns that really tapped into data. Can you talk a little bit about your experience there? Yeah, I mean, every campaign at some point or another, you know, uses data. I think I think that that's an easy bar to pass. I think the question becomes how what percentage of your decisions were made based on data how integrated was the whole process, right? So you can, you can you can make very macro decisions on data. You can make micro decisions on data. And I think well, the, the 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 real strength of the, the 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 campaign was yes, we used data, but we really used we had a closed looped system, right, where we would collect data um, about voters, about donors, volunteers. Um, 
use that to figure out you know who to do outreach to for what uh, purpose, whether we're trying to get them to persuade them to get to vote for us, whether we're trying to get them to just vote, whether we're trying to get them to register to vote, give money, volunteer, um, then provide those that information to the people on the ground, the volunteers, uh, who are then actually doing the the the, the in-person persuasion or uh, you know, the, the the canvassing door knocks, phone calls, um, and then based on that, getting that data back to see what was that outreach and then completing the loop. The, the other thing was that it was much more integrated than ever before. So it's the same information we were all the information we were collecting about every person or had access to data about every person, every voter, we would be able to do outreach along different channels. So the outreach through, again, door knocks, phone calls, but also outreach through social media, through email, through TV ads, through you know, other other types of media. So kind of the, 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 the level of integration and the level of, of feedback loop improving what we were doing, that was the, the real um the the sort of the new things that we did um in in the campaign that really made a difference yeah and i really appreciate that uh that elaboration uh was it also one of the first campaigns to make use of facebook as a platform for outreach well, depends on how you look at it. So, so Facebook, you know, in in a political campaign world, Facebook isn't very old. In our lives, it's been there for a while. But because presidential campaigns happen every four years, the 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 '08 campaign didn't really have access to that much Facebook data. And '12 mm-hmm. was very different. Where yeah, it was the it, it was probably the first time where we where we actually used it um, as as a much more um, personalized outreach tool, very, you know, very much like canvassing was being used. So when an individual would go out and talk to their friends and neighbors, um, uh, offline, Facebook was a way for us to support, facilitate the same thing online where we could tell, a, 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 a supporter, here are six of your friends who, um, we would like for you to persuade to, to get registered to vote because registration in, you know, in this state is ending next week and we really need your help in doing that. So yes, it was one of the first campaigns to, to use that, to use that data to do outreach. And so coming from the the corporate side and working at places like Accenture to a role like that, you know, were you kind of bringing over a full tool set of things that you already had experience with and, and developed um, or, or, you know, understood uh, on the corporate side and kind of applying it in new and different ways to a campaign? Or did it require uh, kind of a, a whole new way of thinking about using data and integrating data sources that was unlike some of the things that you'd seen previously? I think I think it was both, right? So so what the the I think the 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 key set of skills that were kind of necessary to bring and, and that that exists in in the corporate world much much more often is the building complete systems, right? Having something that's that you're you're not sort of doing some analysis and and then giving somebody a PowerPoint or it's really about building a system that goes from the beginning to end and supports basically everything. Um, so I think that was 
Um, and that requires that wasn't just machine learning. That was also around sort of experience with tech and analytics. And like, how do we how do we combine those two things to to actually not just do cool machine learning because that wasn't the purpose. The purpose was to to get votes and win the election. And 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 so I think bringing that the was was necessary also. But at the same time, there were a lot of problems we were tackling where the, there wasn't an equivalent on 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 a you know in, in the corporate side necessarily and so we had to build a lot of new new tools especially i think a lot of work that we did really integrated traditional machine learning with much more sort of a behavioral um econ type behavior change techniques where how do you couple them both which wasn't really mainstream machine learning work it was we can find a lot of the machine learning work still and has been traditionally focused on predictions um it's not ex- it's not the exclusive focus, but that's been a heavy area of focus where we predict some, you know, somebody's going to do something or not do something. And typically machine learning stops there. Um, in most real problems, you know, prediction is a small component of that. I can predict somebody's not going to vote for us and then watch them not vote and lose the election. <laughs> so, so prediction is useless if I can't take that. It's only as useful as it'll tell me I'm going to win or I'm going to lose, but I can't change the outcome. And so coupling that with with um, behavior change with sort of the social science parts of uh, the world to see how do I now couple my my machine learning with with these experiments where I can test and see what's gonna change that behavior for this person that I just predicted as not likely to vote or not likely to vote for us. So there were a lot of new tools that we, new methods that we ended up building that for problems that really needed um, that, but whenever we could find something off the shelf, you know that was the ideal goal. Is if, if if it's been solved, let's use it. Let's not build something new if we don't need to. Um, so so both of those were, were important parts. Yeah, I remember reading at the time, um, and I, I may misspeak the specific details, but the campaign was like what one of the first if i'm remembering this correctly to use something like a a green plum or vertica is like an analytical database um and that was considered to be pretty uh innovative for for a campaign at the time am i remembering that correctly or yeah. close to correctly yeah i mean part of it is that at the previous campaign those things didn't exist right. so <laughs> so i think a lot of things you'll hear every campaign is the first to <laughs> it's the first to do something because it didn't exist you know uh in the previous campaign because in four years technology changes a lot yeah now that's a great that's a great point <laughs> so you mentioned you know one of the the things it sounds like you uh you struggled with there and uh I'm wondering the extent to which it, it has driven your work since is this issue of Kind of the 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 real world application of machine learning in the public policy and social good sphere, meaning you know beyond kind of doing you know analysis around a machine learning model, actually putting it into practice to affect some kind of change or help an organization. Uh, those are two different things. How has that theme kind of uh, carried over to what you're working on currently? Yeah, so I think, I mean, there, you know, a, a lot of machine learning and pick your current favorite buzzword, AI, data science, um, has 
has really been the, the methods have been motivated by you know uh, a lot of the, the the corporate problems and then they're applied to a lot of corporate problems whether it's you know finance or fraud or advertising or search uh, or social networking and you know when I first started down this path sort of uh, I'd say what six seven years ago um, it, it wasn't you know th there wasn't sort of a set of problems out there it's like here are the problems we can tackle in public policy with governments or nonprofits or NGOs um, so so I think the, the path was really trying to one understand what problems are out there what data do those organizations have and where the opportunities for machine learning to have a tangible impact on policy on, 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 on society um, so the, the beginnings of that was really taking a pretty breadth first approach to work with um, school districts, health department, hospitals, workforce agencies, environmental groups, um, police departments, criminal justice organizations and, and jurisdictions to really get a sense for what's possible. What are the problems that can be tackled? And so over the last six, seven years, what we've ended up doing, so we ended up building, I said, this program, Data Science for Social Good, that, that there were kind of two, two purposes for that. One was to really train people, train students who are interested in applying their skills to, to tackle social issues, but don't know how and don't know what the opportunities are and, and, and don't have access to those problems. So the idea was to bring people from computer science and statistics and social sciences and policy and physical sciences together and connect them with problems um, that are scoped out with government agencies and NGOs to help them teach them how to solve these problems. And, and those prob problems kind of came from all over the world and different types of, of policy areas to really understand, you know, what's possible to do, what, what's, what's easy, what's hard. Um, so for example, you know, one of the first projects we started five-ish years ago was in Chicago, which was the health department. And, and, and that problem was uh, around lead poisoning in kids um, where Chicago, but it's not just Chicago, most cities in, in the U.S. are not you know, proactive about dealing with lead poisoning. Um, most of the lead poisoning happened through paint that happens between walls and doors and windows and old homes. And, and and most cities, the way they deal with it is they test kids for, for their blood lead level. And if they find elevated levels of, of lead in their blood, they then figure out a way to remediate the problem and repaint the house and do rehab. And But we also know that lead poisoning is – the effects of lead po poisoning are ir irreversible. So so fixing the home after the fact that they've been poisoned is doesn't really help that kid. It protects future kids who live in that house, but not the kid we just you know tested. And so one of the first projects we, we did there was to help them figure out before a kid is exposed to lead, before the kid is poisoned, can we predict which kids are at risk before they turn, you know, six months, seven months, eight months old? Can we do it early? And if we can predict that early, then the health department can send their inspectors there to fix the problem before the kid has uh, a chance to to get exposed to lead and, and, and get lead poisoning. And so that's one example of an area where, you know, they already had an intervention in place, they had a system in place, but it was reactive as opposed to proactive. And, and, and we could take the data that they had 
been collecting around blood tests and and home inspections for the last 15 years and use that to build a machine learning system that would allow them to be proactive about these things. And over the years, sort of, you know, that system was made much more robust in trials and now that's being implemented in in the city of Chicago to be used as part of their everyday um, inspections, but also um, made available to hospital systems so that it's integrated into their EMR so that when a pregnant woman comes in for a checkup, the system can now flag that woman as the kid that's going to be born is high risk for lead poisoning. So the health department can get notified and, and the inspectors can fix the problem again before the kid is even born, reducing the risk of exposure of any sort. So that's kind of one example of, again, a system that's sort of end-to-end -end that starts from you know, getting that data that's been collected, but then informs a very specific action, supports going out and doing these interventions and then feeds that data back into and, and, and keeps keeps improving and getting better. And so you've worked on many of these projects over the past uh, six or so years. Do you find that they tend to have, is there a kind of a core set of challenges that de these types of projects have that maybe is different from the kinds of challenges that you see on the corporate side or um, does each problem have its own unique challenges that, you know, you have to deal with through the, the data science process? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that the, the, there are multiple, you know, there, there are kind of the technical challenges that, that exist that are sometimes different. There are also non-technical things that are, that are, different right so if, it, it, part of it is i think identifying these and scoping these problems you know it, it's not as if a government agency has a set of well-defined problems that can use data science right? um and so there is that first piece of how do you scope you know somebody will come a, a school district comes in and says we want to improve edu our education of our students okay that's great but what does that actually <laughs> mean where can we support uh where where can social machine learning and data support that process so, so we spend a lot of time doing project scoping and we've kind of have designed some of these methodologies. And then there is often a step of identifying what data do they actually have. Um, now, companies have the same problem. You know, nobody really knows what data exists in a company. Yes, there is a data warehouse, but every department kind of has their own data warehouse. That problem gets a little bit more exaggerated inside governments and NGOs because uh, often they they you know uh, the, the data the data has you know there hasn't been that data integration step taken before in most cases um but then i think on the on the more kind of machine learning type challenges i think there there are a couple of more things that are kind of critical that that are you that are that come up in other areas but 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 don't have as much of an impact there as they do in policy areas right so the the two areas that are kind of really important are one is uh, around sort of explanations of of these types of predictions, right? So if I if I'm building a system for uh, a criminal justice agency and, and what I'm you know or, or or a health agency in a city, county, or state, and basically my prediction is is this person at risk of doing something bad and so I'm, you know, let's say I'm a mental health counselor or a social worker, and I'm seeing my my client, and there's a system that's supporting me, which says, "There's a person you're going to see, you know, they're they're at risk of, you know, not 
not coming back to you for your next few appointments. So you should kind of pay extra attention and make sure they come back. Now, that's prediction is useful. And at that and at that level, the prediction is kind of similar to you predicting that this person is not going to click on this ad. But because the ads are, you know, you're sort of making millions and billions of micro predictions every second, there's no human in the loop there. Whereas for a lot of policy problems, there's you're not making automated decisions. You're giving a recommendation to a human who is then taking some action on another human, typically. Um, and so this middle person, this caseworker, social worker, whoever is your sort of the, the prediction is going to, needs to trust that prediction, needs to understand that prediction, because if they don't trust it, they're not going to use it. If they don't use it, the system is useless. Um, they need to understand it because the, the goal is not prediction. Again, the goal is behavior change. The goal is to get this person to come back or not to do something bad. That's, and so if, the, if I just tell this person that you know, this client is, it, it is at risk of X, that person may not have enough information to take an action to figure out, well, are they not going to get come back because of transit issues, because of employment issues, because of their health issues? So I need a little bit more in order to actually change, help this person change the behavior. So I think that's one big piece that it, 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 it that need is not as uh, critical in a lot of the the, the you know, other large scale machine learning systems in the in the private sector around sort of advertising and social networks and like um, the the second which I think there's a need on both sides but the but the impact again is very different is around making predictions that um, are not disproportionately biased against certain certain groups right because that again it, if I'm making biased predictions around advertising yes you know that there, there are issues with showing um, men ads for higher paying jobs versus women, you know, who are getting disproportionately lower paying job ads. And we've sort of seen that kind of uh, behavior, but the impact is much more drastic when it's around, you know, health and criminal justice than it is about um, advertising. So, so I think those are two critical technical challenges that really need to be tackled uh, because, because the risk is too high uh if we don't tackle it that 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 the impact could could be negative as opposed to you know, positive in your work are you kind of integrating work that other researchers uh are doing in these areas or is your group out doing research into particular approaches to providing transparency for the types of models you tend to see and approaches for addressing bias in the, in the types of models that you tend to use? Both, both, right? So, so, so you know, you, you recently had a, had a conversation with Solon, and so he's done some really good work around, around bias, but there's a lot of other researchers who, both of those areas that I mentioned, sort of explainability, um, uh, uh, transparency, interpretability, you know, there are different flavors of it, as well as fairness and bias have a I say a lot of research, but I'd say, but it seems like a lot to people who are in this community. But if you step back, a very tiny amount of resources in the machine learning research world are being devoted to these problems. Right. Right. Um, so, so there is there is non-zero work. Um, but so, so we, we we do both, right? And again, just just like in in the campaign uh, example, I was giving. 
is ideally this, it's a solved problem and we can just use it because I care much more about solving, you know, I care much more about the impact than doing um, new research for the sake of new research. So, so our typical process is, you know, we'll take existing work and, and, and try to apply it and hopefully it works. And it turns out in, in both of these cases, we haven't been able to find things that directly fit, right? So in, in, in a lot of the, the explainability research, people have developed sort of two types of things typically. People have developed methods that, are, that build really simple models because then you get explainability for free. Um, and a lot of that research claims that the performance of these simple models is as good as the performance of the more complicated neural networks or random forests. Um, and they're more interpretable, so you should use them. And it turns out for a lot of policy problems, when we applied that, that just turned out not to be true. The performance was dr dramatically lower for the simpler methods because we're dealing with much more nuanced phenomena, because we're also dealing with, so a lot of standard machine learning research uses metrics, as one called area under curve, right, or under the RSC curve, as a metric to pick the best model. It turns out in policy, that's a completely useless uh, metric, just like accuracy is a completely useless metric because often today, a lot of government agencies, NGOs, that, you know, they have limited resources. So what they're typically trying to do is say, I have all these people that I have to serve. I have resources to intervene and prevent something on the 10% highest risk people. Give me the 10% highest risk. So. The performance metric is not how well you do on the overall population. It's how well off the 10% you selected as the highest risk, how many of them were actually at risk. Um, and when you sort of run the tests with those metrics, the, the, the simpler models just don't perform that well. Can you give a specific example uh, of this, a, a, a scenario and the simple models that you tried and the more complex model that, that you tried? Um, yeah, so one of the one of the projects we've been working on for the last few years, two three years, has been working with police departments to help them identify police officers who are at risk of what we call adverse incidents, so unjustified uses of force, un, uh, unjustified shootings, uh, you know, unnecessary injuries, and all the things that we don't want police officers to do. Um, and the goal of our work was to uh, predict an officer's risk of doing one of these things in the next, say, six months, 12 months, um, so that the the police department can then intervene for the people who are sort of the, the most at risk. Um, and so that system that we started developing is now deployed at a few police departments, Charlotte-Mecklenburg, Nashville. Um, but one of the challenges there was that you the police you know uh, police department has access to several interventions whether it's training programs it's counseling um it's you know other a few other ones they can only intervene on let's say again about uh, it ranges different depending on how much resources you have but let's say 10 percent of their police force so what they're looking from a system is to rank all the police officers in terms of their risk of being involved in these incidents. And they want to cut off at the 10% and say, okay, we're going to intervene in the top 10%. And so when you apply simpler methods, so you can apply simpler standard methods like, you know, decision trees and, and um, they don't, they don't perform that well, which is 
but then there is a set of um, methods that are kind of optimized. They're, they're supposed to be better than the standard decision trees. So there's, there's a lot of work from um, um, a really good researcher, Cynthia Rudin. Um, she's done a lot of work in kind of interpretable models. Um, and so we, we tried applying that. And the, the hypothesis there is really that it's a simpler model, but it's still very powerful. Uh, and it, what it results in is basically a scorecard. So it says, you know, if somebody has had more than six complaints against them, give them two points for that. And if somebody has had, uh, they were involved in an incident in the last year, then give them three points. If they've had compliments from the public, then give them negative two points. So you add, you get five or six of these rules, you add them up, and if the score is greater than two, then they're then they're low risk. If it's less than two, then they're high risk. So so that's kind of essentially it's a much more complicated algorithm, but it results in a scorecard type output. And mm-hmm. and the hypothesis is that that because it's really simple, and if it's if, if it's effective, if it's accurate and simple, then then you get the best of both worlds. Um, you get interpretability. A police department can look at this and say, ah, I know why this person is high risk and I know what to do about it. Um, and it's accurate. So they're not wasting resources intervening on people who are not at risk. And they're not missing officers who would have been who would then go on to do these 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 things. It turns out when you apply those things, they, they don't really scale to the problems, the, the size of the problem, but also to they don't perform much better than the, the simpler method. And then we apply sort of slightly more complicated things like, you know, random forests and, and extra trees and things like that. Um, the performance is significantly higher. So a lot of the work we've been doing is to take these types of more complicated methods and coming up with ways of, of generating explanations from that. And, and, and there's some work on that too, which is a longer discussion. There are sort of methods like Lime that was, there was one that was published about two, three years ago. That's kind of this model agnostic way of explaining models. So you give it a model and an exp- and a prediction, and this method sits on top of that and, and gives you basically uh, attributes of, of the person and, and as explanation. And it turns out that when you get, if the explanation is, oh, it's the number of times they were arresting somebody on a Monday. Well, how do you know that's a correct explanation? There's no way to know um, for a user that an arbitrary attribute of a a police officer is actually the reason they they are high risk. So it's an open, I think a lot of this is an open area of research, primarily because a lot of this work is done detached is detached from the actual users. A lot of this work is done, you know, mm-hmm. in a computer, sitting in a lab, and and this is inherently, you know, it's 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 this interface between the machine learning system and a human, and the human. So and so we've been building some 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 approaches to get feedback from the users on the explanations, not just the predictions correct or wrong, but if the explanation is correct, and if it's not correct, what what is in the human's mind the right explanation? and trying to see if we can improve over some of these models. I'd like to dig into this approach a little bit, but before we do that, help me understand the deficiency you're pointing out uh, with regards to Lyme and algorithms like that. Uh, when I think of Lyme, I think of kind of at a 30,000-foot view, what it's trying to do is obscuring different 
you know, areas or types of input and then measuring the sensitivity of the decision to uh, the, you know, those actions or the, the lack of information around those types of inputs and using that to create some kind of explainability. How does, is that in line with kind of the way you think about it? And then what what's the fundamental to that that's missing when you try to put that approach into practice? I think it's not a problem that's fundamental to the approach. I think what happens is, so so just, you know, when, when the line work came out, there was this moment of, oh, this is so cool. This is going to solve a lot of these problems that we have, especially in, in policy type problems. Um, but then as soon as you start trying it out, a few things come up. And, and the way I sort of describe it is there are two types of problems we, we, we use machine learning for. One where humans are really good at solving that problem, but humans can't scale. So image classification, document classification, audio um, classification, those are things that humans are pretty good at, but we're just slow. And a computer can be much, 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 much faster. Um, the second type of problems are often these prediction problems of, you know, is this student going to graduate on time? Is this person, kid, going to get lead poisoning? Is this police officer going to shoot somebody? Those are problems that humans are actually not very good at. Uh, because if they were, we'd be using humans, you know, and, and today we're using human systems. Turns out machine learning systems are much better than humans. So on the first set of problems, when Lime, and so if you actually look at the Lime paper, the examples they're using are all from the first set of problems. So when a machine classifies something as, you know, a dog, if you highlight the pixels that are the face of the dog, the human says, oh, yeah, you're right. That's That make, explanation makes sense because the human knows that domain and the human knows human is good at that. So we can we can evaluate and and we trust the prediction because the pixels are the face or the guitar is the guitar. Or for a document class, if you're saying this this document is about sports and it highlights the words that are, you know, goal and ball and field and something, um, then then because the humans, it's that first class of problems, the explanation methods work really well. On the second class of methods, when you apply line to that, um, let's say one of the features, you know, and this is something that happened to us with this police pro uh, project, you know, one of the features that line highlighted was it's the number of arrests they made on Monday night. That's, that's really important. Now, when you give this to a user, a police officer, uh, I don't know <laughs> why, because the first question they ask is, well, why is this important? And so now you need a meta explanation algorithm mm -hmm. on top of an explanation algorithm to explain to you why the explanation algorithm came up with these explanations. And so we spend a lot of time sort of visualizing things and trying to do it. But why is it giving us this one? Is it because the distribution is different from between positive and negative thought? Is it because it changes over time? And and it turns out that that you know there were too many of these things that kept coming up that just didn't they're not wrong necessarily, but they just didn't make sense to to a human expert um, because they they may they may, or may I mean it may be what the model is picking up. So the explanation algorithm might be telling you exactly what the model thinks is important, um, but that may not be a, a way to interact with a human in the loop. Um, so we have I think that's that's one of the gaps in this type of sort of giving you a feature from a machine learning model as the explanation is not how necessarily humans understand things. And so if you're giving an explanation to a non-machine learning expert, because they care about 
intervening on this police officer. They don't they don't really want to understand how random forests work or how uh, linear models work. These explanations are not basically what ends up being these explanations are not satisfying enough for them to trust or take action based on the model. And that's where they fall apart. If they can't do that, then they don't they don't help us achieve the goal that we started off with. Got it. So in this second category of problem where the human isn't good at this thing, doesn't already have a set, you know, a mental model or framework for how to think about making a certain decision, any kind of useful explainability tool has to have some degree of intuition that resonates with the human in order for them to trust it. Or it has to give them an explanation for it can't just be, you know, uh, a one shot explanation. It has to be much more interactive where it can't be, you know, these number of arrests on a Monday. It has to be, oh, number of arrests on a Monday tend to be much higher for these types of people than these types of people. For this person, it's correlated with this. So it has to go a little bit deeper than than the, the pixel highlighting, which which is very because the pixel highlighting, even though in the model it's the same, it's a feature, but the humans has so much more context around that pixel. We see that image and we know what's around that that pixel. We know what that thing is. We have so much context that that we don't need the, the algorithm to do that for us. Whereas in these problems, we just need the algorithm to give us a lot more context and, and they're not there yet. And so you were describing an approach that you and your group were were developing and it started to sound like, I guess you mentioned wanting these explanations to be, or the development of these explanations to be interactive. And it started to kind of have vague echoes of almost like an active learning. And I don't know if it's just the active part of that and maybe has nothing to do with active learning. But I envisioned, as you described it, some kind of successive approach to getting at an acceptable explanation is that kind of you were what you've been working on yeah we're kind of early stages of that so so there's nothing I, I can kind of point to and say you know go look at this but it's 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 related to active learning but it, it isn't really that um because active learning is you know uh, it, it's more on the i need a label from you on the learning side right yeah um so so this is argue i mean it, it is it is could fit into the active learning paradigm but this is this is less feedback on the prediction um, so tell me yes or no, uh, whether I'm right or wrong. It's sort of adding the feedback on the explanation. Um, and so the, the starting point for us is we were sort of testing it out. One on this this police, you know, early early intervention project, but on another project we're working with uh, um, uh, hospital system on HIV retention and care. So people who are not going to be retained into the HIV care, if they don't come back for an appointment, then they're going to be at risk of, of exposure and, and spreading. Uh, and so we want them to come back. And so every time they're coming, the system is predicting whether they're going to come back next time. And for the, for the clinical staff, we're basically taking the EMR form that they have and highlighting the different fields that we think are are that the the model comes up with as being predictive but then we're trying to get feedback both con both kind of at the at the individual feature level 
but for now we're also starting to be more qualitative about okay what you know what what is it that 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 you that's wrong about this explanation and what if you think you have a better explanation what is that explanation because the the first step is really is to understand how do you communicate explanations to people um and that they can understand and act on so so we're in the very early stages of some of that but i the, the but the, i think part of the the problem is that we sort of one of the approaches we're we're trying to look at is having having the the, the people in the loop are much more useful than just giving us yes or no or binary things right that's how algorithms are designed but that's not how people so if we can get richer feedback from people then the question becomes how do you incorporate that richer feedback into your model um or into your overall system um because it could be the explanation says oh this person has had this history of of not coming back and so well yeah but at that time our, our data systems were were not reliable we were sort of collecting data on paper and then scanning them in so don't trust that too much and then like how do you give that feedback um and then how does the model update itself if it if it gets that feedback of oh, okay i'm going to reduce the certainty on this data source from this time period um and how does it update the model and then and then generate a different prediction those are sort of they're getting a little more complicated than than our than our machine learning models are capable of handling right now but that's the kind of feedback we're getting from our users is that that that's the level of interaction they would they would want another question is can those two meet somewhere in the middle can the the machine learning models use that type of feedback and can the human provide it in a structured enough way that that we can we can combine the two and improve improve our systems and are you starting from a feature the the output of something like a lime or are you starting from a totally different place we're st- we're actually doing a few different ones including lime but we we're also sort of going with you know the more um we have sort of some couple of like one of the things we're using fairly regularly is random forests and and so we have some approaches where we can generate um and ex- individual uh level prediction or explanations for for random forest that is um so one of the things we actually ended up doing over the last year or so was to compare the explanations given by all these different competing methods so take take one problem build um a logistic regression you get an explanation there you build a random forest you get the out of the box random forest explanation feature importance you have some of the ones that we developed then we run lime on top of that and a bunch of other um methods that exist for kind of explaining including the sparse models and so we kind of built this thing where we could take us one problem and generate explanations from each of the explanation generation methods and it turns out there isn't that much overlap in these explanations which is also depressing (laughs) (laughs) it's like eh, because we're hoping that if they're all the same then okay good enough (laughs) uh it turns out that, that that they all give you different things is it uh they they all give you different things and some of them are wrong or they all give you different things and they're kind of right in their own way and just not kind of useful collectively or we don't really understand how the models are working or you know is it just kind of loaded with a ton of nuance i, I yeah i think it i think it's all of the above right because when you say they're wrong 
it's, I think, it's, I mean, it's math. Something's right somewhere, right? It's right, right. So I think I think there are two <laughs> ways of thinking of explanation methods. Right? One is an explanation method should basically optimize for fidelity, right? A model did something. An explanation should basically be as close to what the model, if not exactly what the model did, because that's what I'm asking from an explanation method. But the but it, that's hard to evaluate. Um, so the way the way I think about evaluating explanation methods is slightly different because again i care about i care about the problem um and so you know the, the standard paradigm in machine learning is you know the computer is right i just need to convince this human that the computer is right so i need to design my explanation method that best convinces the human that the prediction was right um and i think that's especially in policy problems it turns out that the computer is mostly wrong. Um, so if you pick a problem and you say, you know, here are the top 10, 15% of highest risk people, your your precision in that percentage is often under 50%. It's still very useful because your prior is 2%, 1%, 4%. And so a 40% is a 10x lift, which is great. It's better than humans. It's It should be used, mm-hmm. but it's still wrong more often than it's not. And so then the, the, the goal of the explanation method is not to convince the human that, they, that the prediction is right. The goal is to improve the overall system performance rate. So if, if, if you sort of look at the computer makes a prediction and you can evaluate how correct it is, human makes a prediction, you can evaluate how correct it is, then you couple the human and the model and you see how correct that is. And then you insert this explanation method in the middle and you see how how much does it improve the humans the overall systems performance um and you can imagine you know if the prediction let's say it was a correct prediction and the explanation method increases the human's confidence that the prediction is right then the human's going to going to thumbs up that prediction and 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 so it's going to reinforce the correct predictions when the computer is wrong and the explanation method generates an explanation because it has to and the human says eh, i don't really that explanation doesn't really make any sense. It seems like, and I'm going to override the computer's prediction. So if it if it supports, if it helps the human override the wrong predictions and reinforce the right predictions, then you've now improved the performance of the overall system. And so an explanation method that, that does that is better than an explanation method that doesn't do that. So it's a different way of evaluating an explanation method, but it's a more problem-focused way of of evaluating an explanation method um, instead of asking a human, does it make sense to you? You're really observing, you know, does it help them improve the system performance overall, the human plus the computer and and then evaluate it that way. It, it sounds like you're very early on in this work. I'm like thinking about, uh, you know, mostly just wanting to kind of pop it, pop open the paper and take a look at you know this in more detail, but it sounds like we're yeah. not quite there yet, but I'm, I'm, Looking, I, I really appreciate the the kind of point that you put on the this notion of the explainability that that makes sense to humans, given the the types of problems that you're often confronted with in the public policy sphere. And I'll be kind of looking out for your your work in this space. It sounds really interesting. Sure. Yeah. No. Hopefully, we'll we'll get something useful out. Um, <laughs> I know the problem exists. I don't have a, a solution yet. 
Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, as we wrap up, any parting thoughts or things that you would, uh, for folks that are interested in this area, things that you'd suggest that they take a look at uh, or things that you're excited about uh, in this sphere? Yeah, and I think I think one thing I would sort of people who are interested in both sort of explainability things or and or fairness and bias and, and sort of policy things, the, the the best way to really do this work is kind of get your hands dirty and 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 you know actually work on real problems and and, and with real people because that's where you really figure out the the, the gaps. And so uh, as opposed to kind of the public data sets and things like that. So so people who are interested and, you know, happy to, to point them to places where they can they can help out. Um, and we're doing a lot of work. We're kind of trying to involve people who from the outside to come help us you know, do more work in this area. So if you're interested, you know, contact us and, and we'll figure out a way to get you guys involved. Well, Raid, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. Looking forward to keeping up with what you're doing and speaking more about this soon. Sure, sure. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.